Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today is part two. Finally, it's a part two. It's a part two on Mike Winger. And uh, I listened to the rest of this. And uh, what really, what really encouraged me to do a response episode to the second half of this is uh, some of his butchering of Job. And now Job's my favorite book. And so uh, I got to step in there and right the wrongs. Uh, I'm compelled to. The bell compels me. The ringing of the bell commands you. Yes, Auntie Whispers. All right, just a recap of what he's already done for us. Uh, he brought out uh, some of his favorite proof texts and his proof texts he's drawing from Job. He's drawing proof texts from Job. And uh, it's kind of dangerous to hinge your theology from, from the narration in Job. A different individual saying what they think about God and then God coming in and then correcting them all in the end. It's a little bit dangerous to be relying on quotes from characters in a story for your theology. Uh, but that didn't get past Mike Winger. That's the one thing that we did notice is he doesn't like to turn to his proof text and talk about what's going on in his proof text. He almost did that a little bit with Isaiah. And I was very hopeful there for a little bit, but then uh, he butchered it all up. And so we had to talk about that. Then he talked about uh, what ifs. God knows all what ifs. And that's kind of where we left him and uh, his ideas about Molinism. So let's see what he says now. So God knows what ifs. Now, now nobody really, that I, nobody can have a good reason to, I think, reject the idea of middle knowledge, of God having what ifs. The question is, what does he do with that knowledge? Or So this is the idea of neo-Molinism. Like Greg Boyd has this idea that uh, God knows all what ifs from all what if scenarios uh, infinitely into the future. If there's, there's a branch in... Uh, what can happen? Either I go do something or I don't. God knows what will happen in each of those scenarios ad infinitum. And like, so he has to have all this knowledge in his head at all times. Now, I wouldn't say this is the biblical position. This is a very philosophical position based on people wanting to maximize God. They get this, this uh, thought in their head that uh, God's knowledge needs to be the greatest knowledge that we could uh, come up with. And if God is learning knowledge all the time through uh, things that happen on earth, then his knowledge really can't be changing in any functional sense. So, so he must have had from all time eternity, all these ideas in his head of anything that could ever possibly happen and have responses planned to, to these things. And that's just, that's just not the biblical portrait we have about God. Yeah, we have some some indications in the Bible of God saying, hey, this would have happened if this happened. And we have we have even uh, Abraham. Remember Abraham and Sarah? Abraham says, if I go to Egypt, they're going to see my wife and they're going to kill me and they're going to take my wife because he knows what ifs as well. So just point to one person who knows one what if doesn't prove they know all what ifs from all eternity at all times. It's a, it's a very forced conclusion. So Although it might fit someone's philosophy to say that God has all what ifs in mind, middle knowledge, it's not biblical. It's not, and when I say it's not biblical, the biblical authors have no indication that they accept this type of omniscience. It's just not in the biblical text. I mean, you could hold it personally, but don't pretend that the Bible authors agreed with your ideas of that. Now, the entire story of the Bible is God's failed expectations in regards to mankind, in regards to Israel, in regards to uh, people that he cho chooses for missions to go do things. Failed expectations is the reoccurring motif of the Bible, of the Bible. That's the purpose for Jesus. 
you know, that's, that's the debate. How does it factor into free will? I think it's a good explanation of free will. But um, my opinion. Now, I'll read one more verse for it. Ephesians 1.11. It says, in, in him, we also have obtained an inheritance being predestined. We'll get to there next week. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God's not doing everything, but he's working all things according to the counsel of his will. He's not causing every event directly. He has other... Right. So here we get in back to the language. How is the language used? How does it function? Is this an absolute? Is this limited by context? Is it all the things that God is doing, he's doing for this purpose? And is that all all encompassing? Is all just like all of America has gone insane? It's a hyperbolic statement. Uh, <laughs> what King David says, uh, uh, all have sinned. There's no none righteous, no, not one. But in that very chapter... It's limited to the wicked. It doesn't include him. He's not including himself in the all have sinned and there's none righteous, no, not one. And he's not including the generation of the righteous that's also included in that text. So proof texting, uh, it's a dangerous thing to do because you need to show, you need to show from the context why your reading of that verse isn't, uh, can't be taken in a different way. How your, your reading at least, at least is the most probable of the renderings of that verse. And none of these people tend to do that. None, none of these theologians. It's, it's a massive, massive weakness when it comes to theology that people like to presuppose their beliefs and then find proof text to support those beliefs rather than a deep textual dive and trying to understand and figure out uh, language, meaning of language, uh, contextual meanings, contextual clues to meanings. They just ignore all of that because what they want they really like these types of sermons that are very topical. They like to jump from point to point and say, oh, th this is all our data. Look at this data. Look at that data. And here's my conclusions. Here's me synthesizing the data. Here's me being intelligent and putting it all together for you. You're sitting right there. And here's here's all my studies. And they don't go deep enough. And they're going for the superficial high. Causes. You're a cause of events because you have will, free will to do things. But he's working all those decisions together to a purpose and an end. And, um, and so I think we have a marriage of sovereignty and free will where God's sovereignty stands atop free will, but free will still exists. So, number five. Number five. God cannot learn. God doesn't learn. Keep that in mind. This, this, is, this is crucial. If you think God learned at any point in his existence, you're an open theist. I was just having a conversation with, with a guy in my previous Mike Weger video. And he says, yeah, I think God made a decision at some point. If God ever made a decision, timeless decision, uh, a decision in time, if God made a decision and his knowledge is changing and his, he's learning new things, he's learning what will be, you're an open theist. The classical theology, Aquinas, uh, all, all classical theologians, if God were to learn, gain new information, change his information set, he's not omniscient. He's not omniscient. So if you believe God has ever made a decision, you're an open theist. He doesn't learn. Not because he's really old and you can't teach an old God new tricks. That's not why. That's not it. Not at all. Not at all. He cannot learn because of the completion of his knowledge, because of the fullness of his knowledge. There's nothing to learn. There's nothing outside of that realm of his knowledge. So let me read to you some scriptures. Romans 11, 33 and 34. It says, Oh, the depths of the riches of both 
both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor. It's a rhetorical. There's a lot of people who have become his counselor throughout the Bible. And uh, I'll, I'll keep pointing to Dov Weiss's book, Pious Irreverence, in which individuals uh, confront God, they talk to God, they negotiate with God. Uh, they, in, in, in the Genesis story, what is the function of Abraham in his conversation, in his negotiation with God about the destruction of Sodom? It's, it's to hold God to a higher standard of righteousness, to argue him down uh, based on the number of people that God is going to, what, what kind of collateral damage will God allow in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? That's what the entire conversation is about. And, and Abraham, he's a mitigating character. He's, he's someone who's, who's teaching God, who's counseling God, and God invites him into his counsel. Why? And Mike Winger, he's going to reference this verse later without any self-reflection. Why? Because God knows who Abraham is, that he's a righteous person. And he wants to get a righteous person's input into his decisions that he's making. It's so funny. It's so funny. There's, it's, it's like there's no self-reflection when they use these proof texts. But he's going to use that later in a different context. And we'll talk about that then. But there's a lot of people throughout the Bible who were God's counselors. That doesn't mean like, you know, God is weak and effeminate and, and everyone uh, pushes him around. And, and uh, he's like a manipulable king, like one of those teenage kings where, where the chancellor orders him around and is really doing everything behind the scenes. That, that's what these verses are about. And like, like Isaiah and in this passage as well, it's about God is a God of action. God is a God who will get things done. God makes decisions. People can't push God around. And that is the meaning that's contextually trying to be communicated to, to Paul's audience, to Isaiah's audience. It's, it's not about the counterexamples. The counterexamples are not being denied. Uh, they're irrelevant to the current point at hand, right? So if you have a powerful king and someone suggests something and the king takes that suggestion, like for example, uh, 1 Kings 22 with uh, Ahab. And God says, how are we going to kill this guy? And everyone comes forward with different suggestions and he chooses the one that he likes. This is not him being weak. This is actually an act of power. And so it being an act of power, it's irrelevant to the, the current context of the verse that you're quoting. It's not like this, this doesn't exist. Like the verse he just quoted, now you have to override everything that's in the Bible up until this point, which looks like a counterexample. No, the counterexamples survive in spite of this verse. Who, who is what verse talking to? What point is, trying to, uh, is the author trying to push to his reader, to his listener? What is he trying to communicate to them? That's the point at hand. We don't see, we don't see this level of analysis in uh, Mike Winger. So it's, it, yeah, it, it might be hard to in topical sermons. But it doesn't seem like he, he gave any of these verses, any of his proof texts, any self-reflection at any point. Oracle question. Are you, you going to give God counsel? You're going to tell him something he doesn't know? You're going to be able to inform him? Some people think they can, and I would say it's, it's evidence of a spiritual blindness in the heart to think that. All, all, the, all the authors of the Psalms had, were, had spiritual blindness, apparently, to Mike Winger. So you got you you got biblical examples of how prayers work, function, righteous people giving prayers. And Mike Winger, he throws that all out the window 
because he has a perception of God that doesn't allow these type of prayers. Prayers which are accusatory towards God, which say, God, you've been negligent in your promises. You've been negligent in your in your rulership over the world, and we need you to act and right this wrong. And we're going to try to compel you through appeals to your righteousness, to your holiness, to your justness, to your strong sense of justice. God has a strong sense of justice that people can appeal to to get him to act and move. And you see these prayers throughout the Bible, but Mike Winger, he dis discounts that. And he says, if you have those prayers, if you have those thoughts, uh, you're, you're basically not Christian. I, I don't know. I might be uh, paraphrasing too, too, too strongly, but listen to him. That I can stand atop and judge God um, or inform him. I yeah, pious irreverence. Get the book. It's all about people who've had interactions with God and taught God or compelled God to act or, or act as an accuser towards God. A very good book. Isaiah 40 verses 13 and 14. Isaiah 40 verses 13 and 14. It says, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or, or as his counsel. Again, this, this, none of this, none of this is about God learning new information. This is about people giving God advice to, to control how God acts. That's the context. It's not about God can never learn something new from observation of a new event. That's not what's going on here. And he's using this as verses to reaffirm the theology that he wants to ascribe to God's knowledge, the factual information in God's head. This is not about factual information. It's not about that. But uh, he, he, he needs verses. And so he'll take what he could get. Counselor has taught him. With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The yeah, so this is all about God's justice, people teaching God to be more righteous. And Abraham, Abraham literally does this in the Bible. He teaches him a higher standard of righteousness. Not necessarily that God's original plan would have been unrighteous, that... Uh, some collateral damage can't morally be justified. It's, it's not about that, but uh, Abraham does hold God to a higher standard of righteousness. And perhaps in the Psalms, these appeals to God to make good on his promises, to make good on his judgment and justice and uh, his uh, control over the world. Perhaps those also are trying to hold God to a higher standard of righteousness. So there are counterexamples. And when you just pretend that these counterexamples don't exist, you get into this type of theology. There's a big, loud rhetorical nobody yeah. attached to this. Rhetorical, rhetorical. And what is the immediate point being communicated to the audience? The immediate point to the audience in Isaiah is that God is powerful and God's not wishy-washy and you're not going to control God and God does what he wants. And it's in the context of Isaiah where the people are doubting God's power. Right, so that's what's being communicated. So if someone uses rhetorical flourishes... Don't don't uh, tr try to take that too metaphysically, woodenly, literal. It, language is more flexible than that. This idea. No one's teaching him these things. So to conclude, um, Psalm 147, verse 5, as far as God's foreknowledge, or God's knowledge, what does God know? Um, not just foreknowledge, but knowledge, period. It says in Psalm 147, verse 5, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. Right. We talked about this verse with uh, James DeWezel. James DeWezel will try to use this verse as, this is my infinite verse. This is the one that describes 
yeah, God's uh, God's knowledge is uh, internal to Himself. It's not generated from outside itself. It's an infinite, otherly knowledge. But that's not how ancient omniscience worked. And uh, might have been Mike Winger that in his last episode he talked about how omniscience might be be linked with omnipresence. And uh, yeah, that was that was a good observation. But in the ancient world, omniscience also worked. It didn't. It, ha- it had to work in conjunction with other attributes to make that omniscience worthwhile. What good is knowing everything if you can't put that into practice? And so, uh, you know, you got wisdom. Wisdom is not omniscience. Wisdom is the ability to think and decide and make calculated decisions. Understanding, uh, as used here, is about your cunningness, how, how you c- control that information to, to make things happen, to get things to work out. It's a cunningness. And his cunningness, his able to ability to manipulate reality, his uh, ability to use resources at hand, that's what saying is uh, unlimited. But when you get into this mindset where your omniscience is this eternal omniscience and just God knows all the facts in his mind from all time eternal, all these other attributes get sidelined. Uh, that wisdom, what good is wisdom if you have total omniscience of all things and all counterfactuals. Wisdom is just irrelevant, so you just default back to omniscience. So all your wisdom proof texts turn into omniscience proof texts because you separate. You, you have to conflate those two attributes. Uh, and understanding God's cunningness, God's ability to perform, that also gets conflated back into God's omniscience as he's doing because of his conception of omniscience. Uh, it forces a conflation of God's other attributes just in its function. But ancient Israel, as we see from these writings, as we see from his proof texts, they didn't conceptualize omniscience the same way he did. They didn't conflate these attributes. Now imagine this, comparing your mind to the mind of God. Like how little I know. How little I know. And how little I know about the circumstances that I'm in. See, he thinks it's about information. Do I know all my times tables? Do I know what 172 times 1,055 is? Uh, Oh, I might not know it, but God must have that. Look at this verse. The verse isn't about that. It's just not about that. And how the things that are going on in my life are affecting other things, whether it's on earth or in the heavenlies. How little I know. I like what Job said after he encountered God. He said, and let me, let me paraphrase. He said, man, I'm an idiot. I am such a fool. Who am I to reply against you, God? I repent in dust and ashes. I thought I got it. I didn't get it. And it wasn't. That's, that's not what's going on there. It wasn't that God taught him. God asked him a bunch of rhetorical questions that Job couldn't answer. Job, were you there when I, you know, created the world? Right. So let, let's hear David Klein's on the issue going to read the last, the very last sentence that Job ever speaks in the book, which you would think was a pretty important sentence. It's his signing off word. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I was reading that in the New Revised Standard Version, which is a common Bible uh, for many people. But I'm sorry that it and almost all our versions of Job are wrong. In at least two places, this cannot possibly be what the Hebrew original means because the word for despise, that is translated despise, doesn't have any myself after it. 
It just says, therefore, seems to say, I despise. What? You don't know. But our English translations have tried to fill the gap by saying, I despise myself. But there's nothing to suggest in the book of Job that Job despises himself. So I think the thinking now is that it can't really be that word to despise, but another similar sounding word that means something like melt or submit or give in or quit. And I would argue that what Job is saying, the speech of God to him has been so unsatisfactory, he has got no redress for his wrongs, that he's given up his case against God and he just quits. Now, that's a very strange and rather dramatic reversal of the way it's usually understood. But the second point is that uh, our translations generally say, I repent in dust and ashes. But the whole story of the book of Job is that Job has nothing to repent of. The very first verse verses of the book says that he was an innocent man, a perfect man, who'd done nothing wrong. So how could he be repenting? Just because God has described um, the underworld and the, the goats on the mountainside to him, why should he repent? He's got nothing to repent of. And in any case, the verb that is translated repent has another completely different meaning that fits this context much better. And it also means to console oneself or to be consoled, let other people comfort you. And what Job is saying is, I now propose to accept the consolation my friends are giving me and uh, I will get on with the rest of my life. So what Job is doing there is Job wasn't convinced by these divine speeches in Job. It's not like, uh, oh, I was so wrong and you're so right. It's, uh, I withdraw my legal case against you, God, because I, I see now that I'm not going to get anywhere with those legal cases. And that was David Kleins. David Kleins wrote the Word Biblical Commentary on Job. He's the foremost Job scholar. And everything that he writes and says is absolute gold. Go find him on academia.edu, download all his papers, read all his papers. This guy knows what he's talking about. And let's read one of his papers, The Wisdom of Job's Conclusion. Finally, verse 6, this crucial verse forms the climax of the whole dispute between Job and Yahweh. But sadly, it contains three major linguistic uncertainties. The meaning of, I can't read Hebrew, I don't know Hebrew I've had, so I, maybe I need to start taking some Hebrew classes, is I reject, I despise with perhaps myself for my words, or the, the implied object, or I melt, submit. The meaning of, another Hebrew word, is it I repent, or am I consoled, or I accept consolation? And three, the meaning of dust and ashes. Is it a reference to the place and situation of Job on the ash heap, or a reference to Job's status as mourner, or to his human mortality? David Kleins writes, I cannot now argue my interpretation in detail. In a nutshell, what I propose is one, in a legal sense, Job submits. He withdraws his lawsuit against Yahweh. Two, since he has not done wrong, done no wrong, he cannot repent, but having been in mourning, he now brings the period of mourning to an end by accepting consolation for his lost children as well as for the loss of his honor, a consolation that is off being offered to him both from his friends and in his own way from Yahweh. And three, the consolation he accepts is for the dust and ashes that have been the visible expression of his state of mourning. Reading from another David Klein's paper, 
coming to a theological conclusion about the book of Job, he writes this, Job is neither triumphant nor defeated. The divine speeches have, in the end, neither satisfied nor humiliated him. It is almost as if Yahweh had not spoken from the tempest, for Job has chosen not to hear in the divine speeches the sunny side of the world's structure and management, and he has learned nothing except to have his worst fears confirmed, that he will not get justice from God. No doubt he is better off knowing where he stands and having nothing left to hope for. Mike Winger misunderstands Job. This is not what's happening in the book of Job. In the book of Job, its ultimate claim about uh, good and bad and evil, uh, evil and God's role in society, is that God doesn't have any legal responsibility to to justly manage the earth. That's, that's not something that we should just assume onto God, that he is required to, has the moral responsibility to uh, control and to judge the world. It, it's just, just not part of how this world is set up. It's not something we could just assume. And Mike Winger gets it all wrong. He gets it all wrong. To him, the purpose of Job is God gets to do whatever he wants without any ramification, and no one can teach God anything, is, is what Mike Winger is pulling from it. This, this, this is, I think, a bad reading of Mike Winger. It's, it's all these great rhetorical questions that, that enlighten Job to who, who he was. So it's one thing to ask God questions. That's good. God is our, our teacher, right? But it's bad to question God. That's, that's putting myself in a position where I'm the judge of God, which is just utter fault. Yeah, Job, has, Job is one of God's most righteous, cherished, loved people in, in the world, in history. And uh, Job questions and calls God out. He, he initiates a legal case against God. This, this, is, this is serious biblical uh, theology going on here. We are allowed to be piously irreverent as the book that I keep referencing, the Dov Weiss book, uh, as it makes the claim that that's uh, pretty normal in the theology of Israel to call God to account. Mike Winger's theology, that's not allowed. Folly. Utter folly. Um, so uh, some people will, will summarize omniscience this way. If you want to get like a, a, you could say God knows everything. But, but of course, whenever you're talking with someone who wants to really get to the nitty gritty of it, or an atheist or a teenager, you need to be more specific. <laughs> and put it this way, God knows every true proposition. You know, it's true that Steve is sitting right there right now. That's true. God knows that. And that's, that's the Boyd position, too, that God knows all true propositions as true propositions. In Mike Winger's views of omniscience, this total data set can never change. It has to be static and uh, unfluctuating. And uh, I, my own view is the future is not something to exist. So in the sense that we know it, we know it through what we normally understand as knowledge, not through this philosophical nonsense definition that's only applied to theology this definition of knowledge knowledge of only all true propositions that's that's not knowledge i call it fatalistic knowledge if you have that type of knowledge whatever the object of that knowledge is is fated to be it's true that steve will be wherever he'll be later god knows where he'll be it's true that if steve was given a hamburger he would eat it or something like that you know um but, or, or would not, you know, and, and God knows. So, so this, this kind of covers God's knowledge of 
he obviously knows all things in the past because if he knows all things in the present and has always been present, he also knows all things in the past. He knows the future. He knows what would happen. He knows the, so- the thoughts and intents of the hearts. He knows all these things. So God knows every true proposition is one way to put it. Um, and that may not even exhaust all of his knowledge. There's another really weird, confusing philosophical thing we won't get into. So let's let's talk about uh, real quick Molinism and their ideas of knowledge. So what is an event? What is what is something that can happen? Like Mike eating a hamburger. I don't know. I don't know if he used his own name for the example, but eating the hamburger is the event. And so in his mind, in his system, that event has a switch that goes either true or false. And he's saying God knows all the different pathways to get to that switch to turn it on and off. Um, and that those pathways aren't a thing, aren't an object in themselves to be known in the objective sense, in the I know this object to be true. And in Mike Winger's view of omniscience, those paths have been eternally known to never happen. So that object uh, where those paths result in that being a true object that Mike eats that hamburger, uh, since God has eternally known that those paths would never be taken, that object has eternally been false. That does does that make sense? That that cannot be actualized, and and so this this Molinistic knowledge is not knowledge of objects. It's not knowledges of things, and the things that God does have foreknowledge of are fated events that will happen no matter what, without possibility of otherwise not happening. In Molinism, God knows fatalistically everything that will ever happen and there's no chance no possibility there's no path that we one could take to get to a different true state because everything happens by necessity god knows it will happen and it does happen exactly the way god knows it will happen those other branches they're they're only theoretical they they don't exist they can't be actualized they're not things that there's no probability of them happening at all there are nothings. In Molinism, God knows a whole bunch of nothings and fatalistically knows the future. Because in the end, um, it'll take me 20 minutes. So um, here's a question, though, some people ask. Think about this for a second. Here's what the skeptic might say, the atheist, um, or maybe even the someone else who thinks, Mike, you give God credit for knowing too much, which is like, it's hard to give God too much credit, but um, does God know what a square circle looks like? Does God know, does his knowledge include the knowledge of what a square circle looks like? Uh, Would you guys, raise your hand if you would say, yes, God knows that. Raise your hand if you'd say, no, God doesn't know that. Just curious. Raise your hand if you're like, I have no idea. The majority don't know. This is what you call a trick question, right? This this is kind of like when a teenager is arguing with their parent, and um, they're they're just trying to be clever rather than true. <laughs> That's kind of the case. Sometimes that happens. Um, but everyone else is doing it. Like that has anything to do with anything? Um, yeah. So this is what you call nonsense. It's just words put together in a way that doesn't make a real sentence. Right. So how about this nonsense? Uh, God knows that events can have possibility of being otherwise, although there's no possibility that those events could take those paths, can be actualized in that sense. That sounds like nonsense to me, Mike Winger. Molinism sounds like nonsense. It, it sounds like it's contradictory. It, uh, it asserts two things to be true, 
that things could possibly be different, that things aren't, all events aren't necessary events. They could, they have, there's other possibilities, but then affirming that there really is no possibility that God has eternally foreknown what will happen no matter what without fail. There's no other possibility. It can't be not actualized in the way that God eternally knows it will be actualized. Uh, holding those two views at the same time, that event which is necessary, which can't happen other than how God foreknows it to happen, has a possibility of being actualized in some other way. That to me sounds like the word games, the, the little trickeries, Mike Winger. I think you're guilty of what you accuse others of. Doesn't make any sense because there's no such thing as a square circle. They're mutually exclusive objects. If it's Right, there's no such thing as an event that's not necessary which is also 100% uh, 100% will happen. If event 100% will happen with zero possibility of anything else ever happening, that and, and eternally, eternally it's been known that 100% it will happen without possibility of anything else, that is a necessary fated event. Fatalism. You you don't you don't get your cake and eat it too. You can't say, "Oh, in God's mind, technically there might have been this other path, although Eternally, that was never the case, and that a path would never be actualized. There's nothing that could ever actualize that path. It's a nothing path. That's Molinism is internally inconsistent. It's internally illogical. And uh, what they what they do is word games, sleights of hands. They want to take necessary events, events that will 100% happen eternally, 100% happen with no other possibility and then say that those events are not necessary events. At the same time, defining a necessary event, exactly exactly how we see these events that God foreknows. They want their cake and to eat it too. Mike Winger's the one who plays the word games. It's a circle, it's not a square. If it's a square, it's not a circle. Does God know what a square circle looks like? I think I would answer the question, no. He does not know this. He also doesn't know what door, chair, Tuesday smells. Because it's just words strung together that don't make sense. But right. So if you have a system in which a bunch of words string together and they're incompatible with your system and they don't make any sense, for example, like an event that you say doesn't have to happen, although it's 100% known it will happen no matter what, and there's no possibility of otherwise, those are nonsense concepts that you're putting together. But this is why it's hard to answer because your brain's like, wait, what? Square circle. What is this? I don't understand. I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe. Sure, God knows it. Why not? He knows that it doesn't exist. It's probably what, it, what he knows. Now, if God wants, he can change the definitions of square and circle. But then we're asking a different question, I think. Um, or he can maybe create a reality in which the law of non-contradiction doesn't exist. <laughs> Perhaps. I don't, I don't know how that's possible. I don't think it is. But, uh, but, but this is nonsense. This is not an actual question. But there are people who will try to trump the idea of omniscience with a question like that. And they are trumping something, but it's just themselves. They're self-trumped. Um, here's another question people would ask. Do you care to expound on that? So how do they use that to trump omniscience? Do you care? you care to throw that out there? What Boyd does is he says that God can't know something that's a nothing, which it sounds to me that uh, that's accurate. That's true. And you can't know a nothing and you can't know the future. Um and in that sense, eternal, exhaustive uh, omniscience is not a possibility. But it sounds to me that Mike Winger just advocated the Boyd belief rather than his own belief. I think he got really confused. I think that's what happened here is uh, 
he he forgot what view he was actually refuting. He he forgot what argument he's actually refuting, and he just affirmed the open theist normal open theist argument, the Boyd argument for God knowing not knowing the future exhaustively. So that's a little funny. Would ask uh, if God knows what I will do. Does this mean I have no choice? I mean, God knows with absolute certainty that later on today, I'm going to be editing this video to put it up on the internet to be hounded for doing so. God knows this. So do I have a choice not to? Could I just choose not to? This is an interesting question. I think it's interesting. And this is, this is actually... It depends on what type of knowledge you're talking about. If it's object-based knowledge, that God is eternally known that you will do this without fail, you don't have a choice uh, not to. It's, it's, it's not in the realm of possibilities that you could choose other than what you choose. That's fatalism. By definition, that's why I use, I use the term fatalistic foreknowledge. Knowledge of all true propositions is fatalistic foreknowledge. There's not a possibility of otherwise. That thing will happen. And so what, what's fate? Something that will happen without possibility of otherwise. So that type of knowledge is fatalistic foreknowledge. And if you affirm God has fatalistic foreknowledge to be distinguished with the type of foreknowledge I have of events, I know things are going to happen based on probability, based on how I know the world functions, how I, how I understand my own self, what I will do and how other people will react in, in terms of circumstances. My, my knowledge is more of a justified true belief, which is confirmed after the fact, after the event comes true. So my money on Trump being president in January, I, I throw that out as often. And we'll see if I'm right. I knew, I knew it. I knew it just because of my knowledge of how the world functions and operates. But that's not the type of knowledge he's talking about here. He's talking about fatalistic knowledge. Knowledge of an object that has a truth value eternally this is not related to calvinism exactly okay this is not i don't this is not really a calvinist position this is a position called fatalism fatalism the idea that there is no free will anywhere because if god knows all free will is automatically impossible it's a logical contradiction itself to have foreknowledge with free will well it depends what definitions you're using here if is it exhaustive divine foreknowledge of all events and is it object-based foreknowledge? Then yes, everything is fated, regardless of whether or not God's knowledge is what's actually causing it. And no, no one takes the view that God's knowledge is the cause of the fated events that will 100% happen without possibility of otherwise happening. Uh, except for Augustine, of course. Augustine argues that God's foreknowledge is the cause of the event. But other than that, I haven't heard any open theist argue it. And so when Molinists come out and they say, oh, you argue that the knowledge causes the event to happen. No, no one's ever said that. You're lying. You're lying. And, and we tell you you're lying and we explain it to you. And then you, you go again with the same accusation. Uh, <laughs> it's not good. It's not good. So I know there's a red car. Does my knowledge cause that red car? No. But let's say you know that I know there's a red car. What do you know? you know there's a red car because I know there's a red car and you know I'm right. Given those uh, presuppositions that uh, I do know there's a red car and that you do know that I know there's a red car, you can infer that there is a red car. If we know that God has knowledge of all future events 100% and nothing else can ever actualize other than what he knows, uh, then we know that there's future events that will 100% actualize uh, no matter what. Fated events. 
faded foreknowledge. The knowledge doesn't necessarily cause those events to happen. And here's my claim against Molinism, that God is just a facet of the universe. God is part of the universe and is as faded as anything else in existence. God just functions like the laws of gravity. He just goes along with everything that has been eternally faded and foreknown in their system. Because God doesn't have volition. God can't act. God can't choose. God can't do anything else other than what he eternally foreknew he was going to do. This is the Molinist system. Everything is faded. Um, let me explain it to you in a way that I've heard explained. I think this, this is a good way to put it. And it was uh, by Dr. Uh, William Lane Craig. And I think this is a, a very helpful explanation. So I hope that this makes sense. Um, there's a difference between um, something being logically prior and something being chronologically prior. Okay, so this, this is how William Lane Craig tries to bypass this actual issue. So all these events are not chronologically prior to God's decision. And so it, they're logically prior. So they have logical alternatives. But this is just a category he invented to try to bypass the problem of an eternal foreknowledge, 100% that things will happen no matter what, that is an eternal part of God's character in order to give these this these events an arbitrary category, which he could say is potentiality rather than uh, necessity. This is how he does it, by word games, sleights of hand. But no, in reality, these events are 100% necessary, eternally fated foreknown. And there's no, no getting around this fact. And you just need to bring Molinists to this fact over and over again. They are fatalists. They are uh, they're basically functioning Calvinists, if you will, if they understand and take their system logically and rationally. And so William Lane Craig, he understands this, so he builds a difference between something being a logically prior and chronologically prior. Hmm, how does that work? Something it must be logically prior, but uh, simultaneous and uh, dependent on and uh, interlaced with from all eternity, another event. It doesn't work like that. It's, it's an invention and for sake of argument. Sorry, it's just how it is. So if it's chronologically prior, that means God's foreknowledge chronologically, he knows it before I do it, correct? And then in another complicated sense, he knows it from eternity, which is not a, a, a time location, it's simply from eternity, from constant existence. So God knows it before I do it, but what he's knowing is not that's chronologically prior, but it's not logically before the thing I do. He knows it because I'm going to do it. So could I have free will? Here's how it would work. Let's say I get home and instead of editing and getting this video online, I decide I don't feel like it. I'm tired. I was at camp all week with teenagers and I just want to sleep. I'm just going to go home and watch The Flash with Allison and then go to sleep. Um, so let's suppose that that's our, our Don't watch The Flash. Decision. We do that instead. Now, God will, will know that instead of the other thing. So if I choose to not edit, the Lord knew I would choose not to edit. And he knew it before I chose it. So what happens is you get into this problem of uh, some sort of effect preceding the cause. Uh, when did you decide to do it? If, it, if your decision is after God knows that you're going to do that, then uh, the effect is preceding the cause. You get into those time travel paradoxes. And we got a lot of videos talking about this. We got a lot of videos talking about time travel paradoxes, time travel movies. 
and uh, I, actual videos against Molinism in general. But that's a, that's about all we got time for tonight. I got a got a phone call. I gotta go take, and so uh, we'll leave it there. If you have any questions or comments, uh, post post a comment on the video. Start a thread, and God is open. We'll talk about it. Thank you for listening. I'm a